Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, here with my colleague Emily Peck. Hi. We're here with Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times and other places. Hello. We are going to talk about Threads, which is the new Twitter-killing app from Meta, a.k.a. Facebook. We are going to talk about U.S.-China relations. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, is in China. So we're going to talk about what she's saying and what it means and what's happening to trade between these two countries. We are going to talk about tipping and service charges and whether it is all out of control. We have a Slate Plus segment on a new act that is protecting pregnant workers when they're at work. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Okay, I think we need to start this week with what I am pretty sure is the fastest growing social network in the history of the planet. In the space of basically 24 hours, Threads has managed to amass somewhere on the region of 50 million users. And that's just in the United States, I think. Um, European regulations are a bit stricter, and so they haven't launched in Europe yet. This is an astonishing start to any social network. Um, Emily, do you think it bespeaks a deep desire on the part of America to have a new social network that doesn't do something that the existing ones do? Um, I think it bespeaks of how easy uh, Instagram slash Meta made it to sign up for this new social network. I mean, you just, if you have an Instagram account and so many, so many millions and millions of people do, it was basically a two click process. Yeah. I think it speaks to the power of Instagram or the power that Instagram still had left and the dissatisfaction with Twitter and Elon Musk, sort of on top, one on top of the other. What proportion of those 45, 50 million users who joined within the first five minutes? What proportion of them do you think were on Twitter? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know the answer. I think Twitter itself has, what, 200 million users or thereabouts. Uh, so there's lots of crossover. My feed was filled with people that I know from from Twitter, but I don't know the specifics. Elizabeth, do you? Uh, I don't know exactly what the percentage is, but you know, Twitter is much smaller than, than Meta generally. And... When I logged into Instagram yesterday, you know, I got a prompt for a thread. So I, I get the sense that a lot of the people who are downloading the new app or using threads are, are not really even aware of the, the Musk shenanigans over on Twitter at all. I think it's mm -hmm. primarily just people who are already part of Meta's user base. It's like Instagram users being like, this is fun, this new thing. Pretty much, Yeah. <laughs> Facebook has a long history of launching new products that go nowhere. But Instagram, interestingly, insofar as it's separate from Facebook, is actually batting a thousand pretty much when it comes to um, new products. After it got acquired by Facebook, it then launched this amazing ad product, which is, as I said on the show before, I think that this single best new ad unit slash product that you know, the world has ever seen. It really just transformed the advertising industry. Um, it then launched Stories and Reels, both of which were incredibly 
popular and successful. And now it's launching Threads. And with the possible exception of the ad product, none of these are original, really. You know, they were they were copies of Snapchat and TikTok and Twitter. But Instagram in particular does seem to be very, very good at copying things and doing them like very well and seamlessly and incorporating them into this massive social network that already exists. Well, I think Facebook did, you know, something smart when they acquired Instagram. Historically, they tend to incubate things in-house and then overload them with features that nobody asked for. And for the most part, you know, Instagram hasn't changed that much. You know, it's it's uh, fairly, it's easy, it's more straightforward than a lot of the features that Meta has on the Facebook product. Threads kind of seamlessly integrates into all of that without the user, I think, being very aware that it's a separate service or it's being marketed as such. I think they just view it as an extension of the stuff that they're already using. It's pretty bland, though. Can we talk about that? It's not, I mean, everyone's saying it's a Twitter copycat. And of course, it is a Twitter copycat in that it's like a text-based social network. But the vibe there, and and this could just be like my social graph, I don't know. I don't really use Instagram very much, um, is very, uh, yeah, bland and generic. Elizabeth passed around this great uh, Substack entry from Jason Gilbert that kind of, I mean, it's just so, it's so good, describes <laughs> <laughs> describes threads as it feels like casual Friday on LinkedIn. <laughs> feels like if an entire social network were those posts that tell you what successful entrepreneurs do before 6 a.m. <laughs> and <laughs> the vibe is really cringy over there right now. It's very cringy. I, I think it's a little bit unfair to judge threads by, you know, its first day. No one, you know, um, if you judge Twitter by its first day, God knows what you would think. But the, you know, you remember that whole thing about Twitter where everyone for like a year or more Kept on saying, I don't want to go on Twitter because I don't care what you had for breakfast. Yes, and that I was, remember. That was like a thing on Twitter that it was, everyone thought it was just people posting what they had for breakfast. I think it will evolve into something, and I, but I'm pretty sure it won't evolve into, you know, whatever halcyon era of Twitter you think back to and think, oh, Twitter was great back when, you know. It is clearly very devoted to the algorithmic feed that, um, Facebook and Instagram both are, you know, clear that they serve up and that Twitter has been trying to serve up, but everyone like pushes back and say, no, I just want to follow my followers and no one else. Um, on Instagram, you don't even, on, on threads, you don't even have that option. You know, you're just going to view whatever the algorithm serves you and it might be people you follow and it might be someone completely different. And as we have learned from TikTok, that is a recipe for successful successful social networks, even if it's also a recipe for alienating the Twitter faithful. So I'm pretty clear, at least in my mind, that this is not aimed at the Twitter faithful. This is really trying to create the product that Mark Zuckerberg had in his mind when he said that in, that Twitter should have had a billion users by now. And he's like, they just did everything wrong, and I'm not going to do the things that they did wrong, which were mostly aimed at mollifying the early adopters and the power users. Yeah, I mean, it just, it it's so far, and of course it could change, as you point out, Felix, has the personality of Instagram, which is a more polished, fake, kind of pretend social network where everything looks really good and everyone has great lives and is really happy. That's the vibe I'm getting. It's just not, Twitter was a real place to get real-time news updates and commentary on the news. It, it, it was. And there's no replacement for that yet. And this thread social network is not that. And I don't think it's designed to be. I, I, think, I think Facebook in general is moving quite aggressively away from having news content. They realize that news right. content is just too much of a pain in the ass and they don't want it. On Friday morning, when the monthly jobs numbers came out, I was switching back and forth between... Twitter and threads and Twitter had a million posts about non-farm payrolls and labor force participation rates and revisions to previous months and all you know all of the nerdy stuff that we love to ingest at half past eight in the morning on the first Friday of every month um, and threads I you know had nothing like literally nothing no one was posting about the jobs reporters at all oh. and I, I'm not sure that anyone particularly wants it to. 
Well, you also have to consider, though, that Threads is is piggybacking off of the Instagram user base, and it's really Instagram is a visual medium. The right. people who succeed really well on Twitter are writerly types who can craft, you know, something either entertaining or informative. But it's not Twitter is not fundamentally a visual platform, and so it's totally different mechanisms to, you know, post or convey information on these two different platforms. When, when, when you really say these two different to, platforms, Elizabeth, I'm talking about just Twitter versus threads. But you see, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I will totally agree that Twitter versus Instagram are completely different platforms. But threads is very much a text-based platform that and and the algorithm, you know, rewards people who do good text-based things. Yeah, I'm not saying it doesn't. My my point is that if the threads, the new threads audience is coming out of the Instagram user base, the people who are power mm -hmm. users on Instagram are not necessarily people who are, you know, likely to adapt to a platform where your primary benefit to the user sure. is being able to read things. Sure. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that the people who are power users on Instagram are going to be the people who are power users on threads. Yeah, I, I don't, don't think either. they have been up until now. So I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this audience evolves. I do think that Jason was right that like it's just going to be a very brand safe place for brands to do brand things. Um, and I also think that there's always a flush of excitement when we f see something new and inevitably there is going to be a pretty heavy ad load on this thing pretty quickly, given the number of users who are um, already signed up to it. And the minute that ad load starts becoming significant and visible, like a lot of the excitement about it is going to fade because the ads are going to be terrible. The ads, well, if there's one thing I have faith in, it's not the quality of the content on a meta social network um, or the originality or the fun of it which Twitter still does have a little bit of, it's the fact that they have really, really addictive ads. Someone said to me yesterday, I, I still use Instagram for the ads. That's, that's amazing. And, right. so, and this is really interesting, right? That, and as I said, like the, the Instagram ad product is amazing. As Elizabeth has said, Instagram is a visual platform. And... One of the things that makes the Instagram ad product so amazing is because it really leans into that and you get these amazing, strong, striking visuals that take up basically your entire phone screen and you're like, whoa, and then you click on it and buy it. Um, it's, you know, my gut feeling is that if they try to port that over to Threads and have full screen, highly visual ads from brands that, have clear sort of call to actions of people saying shop now, then that those ads will perform incredibly well, but also that will really hobble the, you know, the social network part of it, because that kind of thing seems, seems antithetical to what you see much more often in Twitter ads, which is things that you scroll by and notice, but don't necessarily click on. And, you know, that kind of like the importance of adjacency and having something natively in feed rather than having this more sort of like, and it was weird, like in, in a weird sense, I think that Twitter ads are more brand advertising, whereas Instagram ads, you know, a lot, some, there's some brand advertising, but there's a lot of just, you know, basically direct mail, you know, calls to actions, using it at the very low down the sales funnel, click on this and buy something immediately. And I, you know, I'm not sure that's going to play well with the, the text-based um, network. We will see. Yeah. Also, Twitter's just, they're, 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 they're working with a much smaller set of data in terms of how they can use it for retargeting, which is part of what makes Instagram's uh, ad, ad product so effective. It's, you know, and if, if you're on Instagram a lot, you notice that, uh, you're being served ads that are just very minutely targeted to you. That's a function of the data that Facebook has or Meta has with it within its whole system, not just an Instagram, because it's all the same ad product. Can you talk a little bit more about this, Elizabeth? Because I rem I'm old enough to remember, you know, this time last year, basically, when everyone said that the new Apple iOS update had killed all of that and that Facebook had lost huge amounts of data about its users and it was much less able to 
um, get that kind of data and serve up the right ads. And its ad revenue started falling off a cliff and its share price went in the toilet. And now you're saying that's all back and they have all of that again? No, I'm saying that it's it's the best option if, you, if you're a digital marketer. It's still one of the largest platforms that you can do that kind of advertising on. And you're still working with a lot more data than, you know, your alternatives, which are basically you know, Google ads, other social networks, um, you know, email retargeting. So even if you decimate Facebook's data, you're still dealing with one of the largest platforms available to you as a marketer. So, you know, all that stuff did happen, but it's still a pretty good option for digital marketers. The one thing I will note is you guys should all just like, if you have a screen spare, just have a look at the Facebook slash Meta share price. It is absolutely amazing the way it went all the way up and then all the way down and then spiked all the way back up again. Um, and I think there is, at least the stock market does seem to be thinking, you know, there's life to this whole guy yet. And, you know, some of it is the ads coming back. Some of it is excitement around threads. A lot of it is connected to stuff we've talked about here before, which is like layoffs and losing a bunch of the labor costs. And most importantly, um, sort of pivoting away from the whole metaverse misadventure and, and basically saying we're not going to be spending $20 billion a year on horizons anymore. Um, and that has, you know, it turns out that all they needed to do was stop being metaverse and Facebook is still a formidable company. Yeah, that's kind of my question, actually, because if you look at uh, the Reels product, it doesn't, there aren't, not really ads there. The, the, the ad money is coming still from Instagram and the photos. And if you look at Twitter, it's never really made that much money or turned a profit. So like, why, why would you want to do a new kind of text-based Twitter when you're not, you're not like, it wasn't a moneymaker. Like you're ripping off something that wasn't a moneymaker. Is the, is the rationale like, well, Meta knows how to make money yeah, off of I ads think it, and they I can think do it, it better does. Remember, than, than Twitter. Remember that when Facebook bought Instagram, it was pre-revenue. You know, there was zero ads right, on Instagram course. when they bought it. And Facebook invented that ad product and it did amazingly well. Um, Reels doesn't have ads yet, but if you look at the amount of money that TikTok makes in terms of ad revenue, the opportunity is clearly there. And they're just waiting to pull the trigger. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they're going to leave it a while before they start introducing ads on threads, right? They're going to let it really develop and build because they can afford to. Um, and then, you know, when the time is right, they'll be like, okay, now is the time to, you know, inshitify the experience a little bit by adding ads or be, or be very careful when they first do it and just start adding a few ads here and there and see, see, what, see how it works. Because, you know, they do have such an amazing base of advertisers that they can they can afford to enter these markets slowly and they can afford you know whereas as you point out twitter can't right twitter is desperate for ad revenue which is why if you go on twitter these days you just see the most terrible ads because they can't say no to anyone right and i guess that's like the other question for me hanging over all of us is it seems like this is the slow demise of twitter um which i mean Felix would say maybe is a navel gazing thing to worry about. But I think at its peak, you know, Twitter really was a place for news, a place to get commentary on the news, a place for um, activism. Um, I mean, revolutions to form. And that's not something that's coming back anywhere. That's not something Meta is going to create on threads. It's, it's just something that's going away. As a journalist, as a, as a blogger, you know, I... I'm terrified about this. The I still deeply and painfully, and it's been 10 years and it's still fresh, the wound of when Google shut down Google Reader. And that was <laughs> where I got all of my news and all of my information, right. all my analysis. And I, like, I miss it terribly. But the one thing we had left when Google shut down Google Reader was Twitter. You know, And Twitter effectively replaced Google Reader. And now that Twitter is you know, on its last legs... 
I'm looking around the horizon and I don't see any real replacement. I don't think Threads is going to be the replacement. I certainly don't think Mastodon or Blue Sky or Post or any of the other sort of Twitter clones is going to be the replacement. And uh, that just is sad. It's very sad to me. And on some level, I think it's going to make my work product worse. I feel like there's space for a news company to do a real-time news product similar almost to Twitter, where you're getting like live news updates throughout the day, not full stories, but just text updates like an old fashioned wire or something like there's room for that. Yeah, like but journalists Twitter's are using Twitter like that. You need to be able to talk to people. And that's why Threads has taken off in a way that all of the other Twitter clones hasn't, right? It's because it has that critical mass of people being able to talk to each other. Yeah, I think, you know, Blue Sky feels a little bit like good Twitter to me, but they're growing mm-hmm. so slowly in this, this you know, method of onboarding people via uh, slow dripping invites is just not going to, if they don't figure out a way to scale faster, I don't see how Threads doesn't just stomp them. Yeah. And the thing that really sort of gives Threads a massive leg up over Blue Sky is not only the fact that they have the tech infrastructure to be able to onboard 50 million people in a week, which you know, Blue Sky could never, it just doesn't have that much money. Um, But also, it gives you a whole bunch of people that you know and you're automatically following just by importing your Instagram follows. On Blue Sky, building up a follow graph is incredibly laborious and difficult. On threads, it's painless. Okay, that's enough media navel-gazing. We should talk about something important. How about um, Janet Yellen's trip to China? Is that important? We will find out (laughs) after the ad break. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Elizabeth, Janet Yellen's trip to China, is it important? (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think it is i I think um you know there was some optimism that she was maybe the best ambassador for what we need to accomplish there um and it seems like the the trip overall went well she met with lee chong the premier and articulated some of the u.s foreign policy establishment's concerns about um you know china cutting off materials that we need but I, th- I think the Chinese are still very concerned about the fact that Trump-era tariffs have not been rolled back. And so her job was to go there and just sort of reestablish the fact that nobody has an interest in complete decoupling. I mean, what was your read on what the outcomes were? What did you think? I, I, so it was really fascinating. Um, if you read the New York Times headline, she was like flying into the mouth of the dragon and speaking harsh truths, you know, in person about how, you know, the, the problems that the U.S. has with China. Meanwhile, if you read the Financial Times headline, she was coming bearing a, you know, what, what, what kind of leaf does a... Uh, olive branch. Olive branch. Olive branch. There you go. <laughs> An olive branch. She comes bearing an olive branch, and she's being very nice and friendly. And my my reading of it is closer to the FD than the New York Times. I think that um, she was very clear in her remarks that she wanted more trade between the two countries, that like whatever differences they have in terms of foreign policy should not necessarily just trickle over 
into into trade policy and into trade, and that we should keep the economic ties between the two countries that have been built up over the past 20 years. And the reason I say 20 years is because right now, Chinese trade is a percentage of US GDP or US imports is at the lowest point it's been in 20 years. Um, the relations between the two countries are worse than they have been at any point since there have been diplomatic relations since 1979. The number of things they disagree about and of, you know, fighting with each other on is enormous. The, you know, we are at a very, very low point. And in some sense, that gives me a little bit of hope that a little bit of hope that the only way from here is up. But I'm not I don't really believe that. Um, there was a very interesting article in China Daily, which is part of the Chinese propaganda ministry, about this new pro policy they have about gallium and some other, you know, metal that's necessary for building semiconductors, and basically saying this is going to inflict pain on certain countries, and by certain countries they clearly meant the United States, right? And um, and so they're still really fighting with each other. They're, you know, they're, the, the Chinese are banning Chinese companies from buying chips from Micron. The Americans are banning, you know, a bunch of chip designers from selling technology to the Chinese. Um, trade is going down. Everyone's trying to circumnavigate the rules. There's lots of talk about um, human rights abuses and, and there are you know, myriad issues, including relations with Russia, where people, where, where like the two countries are just nowhere near each other. And that feels to me like the relationship that's deteriorating and is not going to get better. And for all that Janet Yellen, who's definitely one of the more dovish members of the government when it comes to China, for all that she would love to turn things around, I don't think she can. Yeah, but that there, there are still, you know, constraints that we have that I think do prevent any serious decoupling. I mean, China has a trillion dollars of U.S. debt. They're still our third largest trading partner. Um, I mean, I, I just don't see, like, how much worse could it get, in your opinion? Well, China could invade Taiwan. That's a fear, right? I mean, it could get a lot worse, is the answer. It's interesting, the the dueling headlines, I feel like that is a sign of success of this mission. It's kind of like when you publish a story and, and like people on both sides of it send you emails telling you how bad it, and biased it was. You're like, I have won. <laughs> <laughs> like if if the U.S. thinks Yellen is like talking tough and um, and the, the FT or, or others think Yellen is there to make peace, that's sort of like the perfect balance. Um, so maybe she's doing a good job, but it does seem like this is beyond a visit to fix. <laughs> yeah, Tensions and, are so high. Yeah, and, and there was a visit by Tony Blinken a few weeks ago as well. Like, I think the government, that the executive branch is trying to mend things because I think everyone appreciates that things are really bad right now. But the thing, they, the, the thing that the executive branch can't do, no matter how friendly Blinken and Yellen are towards China, the one thing they can't have any effect on really is Congress. And Congress is in full-on dragon slayer mode right now. Everyone in Congress is, uh, is, is competing with each other to be as antagonistic towards China as they possibly can be. And so long as that's the case, I just, you know, I don't think relations between the two countries are going to improve anytime soon. Right. And I mean, gosh, we're heading to a presidential election, the 24 elections. And if a Republican goes in office, I think they tend to be more, even more anti-China. Things really could get a lot worse seems like the Biden administration is trying to have it both ways here. If you look at the Trump tariffs on Chinese imports, right, um, the Democrats at the time, certainly like the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, the, you know, Bidenites, for lack of a better word, all opposed them. They said, this is, this is a bad policy and you shouldn't do it and it's just going to increase costs for U.S. companies, which was true and it did. Um, and... Then when Biden came into office, everyone kind of expected that if these were bad tariffs, then they would be rolled back. And they weren't. He kept them all. And then he added new ones, and he added even more export controls than Trump had. It turns out that Biden has out-trumped Trump when it comes to China tariffs. Yeah, it's a win, I think, to be to look tough against China in the U.S. politically. And then 
business-wise and economically, it's not a win and it's a really dicey situation. It's a bad dialectic. I don't know. It, I like that. Bad dialectic. <laughs> <laughs> you also have to consider that, you know, the our relationship with China is, you know, evolving or devolving, whatever you, you think, uh, along multiple levels because there's a diplomatic conversation that's happening and that's the point of sending Yellen, who is regarded as the, the friendliest person in the executive branch to China, as, you know, to have these talks in the first place. That's a that's a kind of signaling to China that, you know, we, we do want to maintain the economic relationships we have that work for us and for them. Uh, but then here, you, to Felix's point, you have a lot of congressional hawks who are being mm-hmm. very loud and using China as, as really a rhetorical device um, for political reasons. You know, Nikki Haley has been telling people that China is preparing for war, which is... <laughs> you know, completely over the top. But there's no single factor that's going to determine what the relationship with China looks like. It's going to be a combination of these things. And I think the Treasury's decision to engage China on these issues indicates that the administration is not as antagonistic to China as, for instance, the the sort of surface level analysis would lead people to believe, or just the fact that he kept Trump tariffs in place. Or the fact that we passed the CHIPS Act, that we are aggressively encouraging American companies to onshore their supply chains, that we are rapidly increasing the number of exports that are banned to China, especially in technology and semiconductors, um, and you know, and and so on and so forth. I, I think it's. I think there is a rift actually within the executive branch. One last question for you, Felix. You mentioned imports are at a 20-year low from China. Why, why exactly is that? So a lot of it is those Trump tariffs. Um, and a lot of it is also a bunch of weird things that aren't necessarily long-term sustainable things. So one thing about the Trump tariffs is they really singled out China. And so if you're a Chinese company and you want to export something to the United States and you don't want to pay massive and you don't want your customers to have to pay massive import tariffs on it, basically what those what you do is you send the components of that thing to Vietnam or Malaysia or somewhere like that where it gets for final mm-hmm. assembly and then it gets exported from Vietnam or Malaysia and it doesn't face the tariffs, right? Mm. So they're still kind of sort of Chinese imports, but they just don't register as such. They, as such, they, they register as Vietnamese imports or Malaysian imports or even Indian imports. We didn't talk about Sheen, how they do their their exporting to the U.S. Yeah. Since we're, to- since we're talking about Sheen these days, it seems to be like the hot, hot topic. Get this, Sheen <laughs> and Temu, who, which is the other, like, you know, she and clone. Um, between them, export six hundred million packages per day, or something completely insane like that, to the United States. Um, and all of those fall under the de minimis rule. Basically, they're all worth less than eight hundred dollars, so they don't count as imports for the purposes of national statistics. Um, and she and Temu pay no. You know, there's no import tariffs on that because they're below that minimum value. And in a weird way, both of those companies are just creatures of regulatory arbitrage and probably wouldn't even exist at all were it not for the Trump tariffs. So when you say imports are at a 20-year low, does that include those those imports from Sheen and Temu that are no, skirting No, it does not. Tariffs? Exactly. So, so you have to add in that. You have to add in the Vietnamese and Malaysian imports that are really Chinese. And you also have to take into account that 2022 was a particularly weird year because there was that big supply chain backlog in 2021 when all of the mm. container ships were stuck off the coast of California. And so they all... That, as that backlog eased in 2022, that meant that there was much more imports than normal in 2022 because it kind of included a bunch of those 2021 imports. Um, and so year-on-year changes from 2022 to 2023 look bigger than they otherwise might. So there's a lot of reason to believe that the you know the headline figures aren't quite as bad as, as they look, but clearly they're bad and they're getting worse. Yeah, clearly they're an indicator of a worsening of, of sentiment because if, if – if 
China is doing all these, or Chinese companies are doing all these like workarounds to get stuff to us. And that's the big reason the number dropped. That's still very notable. You know, it still works as an indicator. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, I think we should talk about tipping. Emily, you have opinions on this. I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really wanted to talk about it. There's been so many stories lately um, that I've been reading and just, you know, experiencing life as a consumer The consensus take is that tipping and service fees, especially at restaurants or um, fast food outlets, is out of control. There's too much tipping. It's gone too far. There's always an anecdote in these stories about someone at a self-checkout who was asked to tip, which is obviously absurd. I really enjoyed a TikTok from a woman sitting in her car. They're always sitting in their cars in these TikToks where she's like, I was just at Subway. And they asked me to tip. And y'all, are we supposed to tip at Subway now? I don't understand, you know, um, because she bought a sandwich or something. And then it was like, do you want to tip 10, 20, 30% for this sandwich? Um, So I think there is a vibe among the customers that tipping is out of control. At the same time, I know I shouldn't bring up two topics at once. At the same time, there are these now service fees popping up at restaurants where in addition to being asked to leave a tip, you're told you're being charged a 20% service fee, and it's not often clear why. So it's like, bottom line, tipping is out of control, and people hate it. And so I I don't know what to think. You have done a very good job of synthesizing the (laughs) discourse here. I have synthesized, yes. Um, But I love the way that you framed it. You're like, I have, you know, I've been seeing this. This is the discourse, right? Now... Tell me how you view that discourse. Is is this something that is a real thing that you broadly agree with? Or do you think, are you kind of seeing something now that is, that you want to push back on? Um, I want to, I don't love stories where people are like, tipping is so confusing and hard because I just feel like it's a little bit of like privileged customer whining. You know, um, like it's been, it's become quite difficult, I think, for workers in the service industry um, over the past few years. So I don't really begrudge them asking for 30 or 20%. And then at the end of the day, it is optional to hit the tips, the tip buttons and stuff. So it doesn't seem like a huge issue. So yeah, I think that's kind of where I land. I feel like, yes, this is something that's perhaps happening, but... We don't need to freak out about it. It points to larger issues with the way restaurants and the service industry can charge people. Because if you read deeper into the stories, there are these restaurant owners that say, like, we can't raise prices more on food because people will revolt. So this is how they are paying their workers. Well, what it is, it's a way to create variable prices for different people. Right. Mm-hmm. This is something that, you know, airlines have been doing for decades, right? That, you know, the amount you paid for your seat is going to be very different from the amount that the person sitting next to you paid for theirs. And the way the airlines do it is by very, very carefully trying to make sure that the people who can afford to pay more pay more and the people who can't afford to pay more pay less, right? And something similar is happening with, you know, tips for coffee, right? Is is that if you can't afford to pay more for your coffee, you don't, you don't leave a tip. And if you can afford to pay more, you know, because of all of the 
sort of ease of leaving a tip now it's just pressing a button and the social pressures of like someone flipping that screen to you and you're standing in front of them and you don't want to be the person who doesn't leave a tip when you're standing in front of them you know you wind up leaving a tip and i'm reminded of the time that the new york city taxi cabs switched over from being cash based to all of them had to start accepting credit cards and the taxi cab union was very opposed to this because, you know, when you get paid in cash, guess what? You don't always pay income tax on all of your cash earnings. Um, And they were worried, basically, that when all of the fares ended up getting, you know, taxed, they would wind up taking home less money. And it turned out that the tips that people left on those credit card fares were so much bigger that it more than made up for the fact that you know, some of the old cash fares, they might have gotten tax-free under the table. And a lot of this, I think, is just technological, that the technology of flipping screens and the ease of tapping and paying with, with phones and credit cards and that kind of thing has allowed people to ask for tips um, in a myriad of different places where before it would never have occurred to them to ask for tips and there wouldn't have even been a mechanism to leave a tip you know mm-hmm. at a self-service checkout you can't leave a cash tip if you're paying with cash but like with a card it's bing 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 and so and so everyone's like this is free money if i ask for it maybe i'll get a tip well, worst I, case scenario so done also just culturally a lot of this started during the pandemic when people were concerned mm-hmm. that service workers were putting themselves at risk and not making enough money and so a lot of the service charges that emily's talking about especially at restaurants uh, were a function of that. And then they, in, in a lot of cases, where the owners would spell that out. They would say, you know, here's an extra service charge because we're incurring extra costs and we need this money to stay open. And then, you know, as with any kind of inflation, it's very difficult to roll it back, you know, especially once those businesses start operating with those specific economics and expecting that those tips are going to come in and that the service yeah. fees are going to stick. Yeah, no, and this is this has just been proved time and time again. Whenever a restaurant tries to do a service included model, where you know the service is included in the price of the dish, like you get across Europe, and is perfectly you know grown up and sensible, people just don't go to that restaurant anymore because they take one look at the prices of the dishes and they're like, "That's crazy expensive. I won't go there." And if you advertise an artificially low price for your dish and then everyone winds up having to spend 20% on top of that at the end of the meal that you know somehow you don't get the same sticker shock I did not it's incredible psychology it's incredible psychology but it's here to stay and service charges in general I think are broadly good insofar as they go to, like, at least in restaurants, insofar as they go to all of the workers in the restaurant, including the, you know, back of house, rather than just to the service. Um, where they're terrible is when there's, like, a 20% service charge, and they're like, and now we encourage you to tip on top of that. It's like, no. So if I'm already paying 20% service fee, that's it. You're not getting a tip on top. Right, and that's the big problem with the service fees. A lot of... Um servers, waiters and waitresses say, like, if they're at a, serving at a restaurant that has a service fee like that, they just don't get tips. And it's not necessarily true. Well, they that do. The they, get, they get fee, part of the, they get part of that 20%. Tr- part of it. Yeah. But a normal tip would be 20%. So right. they don't yeah, they have get to sh- good Basically, money. <laughs> they have to share their tips with, with the people making the food and they're like that, you know, so they've paid does wind up going down. And some restaurants are using the service fees for other stuff. Like, it's not necessarily clear. And the laws are different state to state on what restaurants can do with the service fees. And I would suspect a lot of them are not, you know, sharing the money benevolently with the, their workers and are using it for other stuff. And it's getting, you know, it's just, it's a little more of an opaque way to pay to pay your labor costs. The whole system to pay labor in restaurants is is Is, is Uber, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> the good news is that we are in an incredibly tight labor market for, uh, you know, in general and in the hospitality industry in general, in, in, in particular, I should say. Um, and 
if you're a decent server, you will go to where you make the most money. And if there's one mm -hmm. restaurant that is stiffing its servers by not paying them out on tips and service fees, that restaurant is going to lose service very quickly. And in fact, that's why, you know, Danny Mayer ultimately ended up rolling back his policy of service included was that he just couldn't find the servers anymore. They wouldn't work for him anymore. Yeah. The psychology of working for tips is is also a thing, right? You go home with a lot of money in your pocket versus at the end of the week, you get a check that's like all tax to hell. So, I mean, it's not just the customers in the restaurant industry who have a different kind of psychology. It's the workers too, I think. Also, I wanted to ask if you folks, have we talked, have I asked you this already? I'm getting a deja vu feeling, but do you tip 20% when you buy a coffee <laughs> and they turn the screen around? I, I generally tip a buck, but I don't buy fancy coffees. I just buy like a, a small black filter coffee. And you tip a dollar? And I'll tip a dollar on that, which is, you know, if it's a $4 coffee and I, and I tip a dollar on that, that's 25%, right? So like, mm -hmm. you know. Elizabeth? Yeah, I always tip. I mean, also I go to the same like two coffee places and, and particularly for locals where you, you know the staff, you know, to me it's no different than going to a bar or restaurant, really. It really feels like socially unacceptable not to do it. It reminds me when I was like in my 20s, we would go to the Met and you could just pay like a penny if you wanted because it's like a donation, recommended donation. And, you know, it's like recommended donation, $15. But you're like, wait, actually, I could just give you a dime and it's fine. But when you did it, when I did it, I always felt like a criminal, you know? There's a, right. there's a concept called positive <laughs> surveillance, which means that, you know, if people are watching you, you're more likely to exhibit mm. pro-social behavior. So some of it, too, is just that <laughs> what Felix alluded to, if somebody's standing there watching you press the button on the screen, if you decide not to tip or leave, you know, a crappy tip, they're watching you do that. And that's that's a lot more pressure than, you know, when somebody drops the check at your table and you can scribble right. your tip in and then jet out, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's intense. and But no one's watching at the self-checkout, okay? I draw the line. I am not tipping at the self-checkout. There's no one there. <laughs> no one is helping me. I'll tip myself, thank you very much. You should. Give yourself a yeah. decent tip. Should we have a numbers round? Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, Emily, what's your number? My number is related to our last conversation. It is $17.96. Do you know what that is? No. Oh, it is the the minimum wage for app-based restaurant delivery workers in New York City that's set to take effect on July 12th, which is in just a few days. Um, and so, is, does that include tips? No. That's just the minimum wage. Wow. Um, and okay, the apps so, can work it out however they like. But, but if the, app, but if the have, apps are like, we guarantee you at least 1796 you know, once tips have been taken into account, that's not enough. They need to have a base pay of 1796 Right. Awesome. But, but, but the apps but. just sued this week oh. to enjoin this from, from going into effect. So TBD, whether it goes into effect or not. But if it does... It will even get better in 2025 when it rises to $19.96. Dun, dun, dun. That's exciting. Um, my number is 3,000, which is the number of students at Oak Park and River Forest High School in Illinois. And as we all know, everything is done on computers these days, and every every student at the high school had a Google account where they had all of their information. And the high school brought someone in to fix something and they broke it and by, instead of fixing it. And they wound up resetting every student's password to something that the student didn't know, which, <laughs> you know, is a problem. But <laughs> never mind the problem. Like There are a million ways of fixing this problem, but they managed to choose. I love this story so much. They managed to choose the absolute worst way of fixing the problem, which is they changed every single student's password to change me and then said, you guys should just log into your account with this identical password that you all have. 
and then change your password. And so, of course, mm-hmm. what they all did was they started logging into each other, each other's accounts with the change me password because they now everyone knew everyone else's password and chaos ensued. Oh my this, God, this is the plotline of like a, a YA novel. It, it yeah. totally is. It's just like, how, what, no. <laughs> um, Sounds so fun, though. Yeah, can you imagine? Can you? I mean, seriously, Emily, yeah, can you imagine like, a, like we we have we have G Suite at work at Axios. Can you imagine if like suddenly all Axios employees had the same password for their Google accounts? Chaos, chaos. <laughs> we'd be we'd be reading Jim Van Der Hey's email. Mm. Sounds fun, um, Elizabeth. Uh, my number is 54, and that's the average age of an incoming CEO in uh, this year. Um, and this is from a time story about Gen Xers running everything now, but also yeah. exhibiting <laughs> uh, maybe counterintuitive attitudes toward remote work. Uh, there was a survey where I think the, the people doing the survey just assumed that the people would be most in favor of remote work would be the youngest part of the workforce. Uh, because, of course, we all stereotype younger people as being lazier and less inclined to work. But Gen Xers exhibited the highest preference for flexible work time, with as many as 50% of Gen Xers preferring remote work, and partly because we're in the sandwich generation. A lot of us have kids at home and are also caretaking for parents. I think yeah, it's that seemed more, like more the reason than yeah. the slacker mentality. Yeah, it's, it's not the slack yeah. thing. I, it, it is this thing about having to deal, you know, care, look after parents and kids. But it's also that going into the office is really important when you're early on in your career just to learn what the hell it is you're meant to do and to get better yeah. at your job. You know, being surrounded by people who are doing that job and learning from them by being in proximity to them is how people have learned to do their jobs for centuries. And I think the Zoomers who are entering the workforce intuitively understand that, you know, that if they're going to have a career and if they're going to get better at what they do, they're going to have to learn from their peers. And it's just so much easier to do that in an office than it is remotely. By the time you're 54, you can basically coast along on what you've already learned and you don't need to go in the office to get better at what you do so much. Do you think we'll ever have a Gen X president? I mean, no, we will just, not. It is not going why? to happen. But because you, you we're think too Pete lazy? Buttigieg is going to be the you know, or if we do, it's going to be Nikki Ron? Haley, and it's just going to be like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis—they're Gen X, right? They are. Yeah, huh. Ted Cruz is Gen X, as <laughs> you can tell by the fact that he's constantly quoting the Princess Bride. <laughs> I think we're going to end it right there, Felix. Okay, we will end it. We will end it right there. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for emailing us on sleepmoney at sleep.com. Thanks to Ben Richmond and Patrick Fort for putting this thing together. And we will be back next week with even more Slate Money. <laughs>